Welcome to the Sit Down and Sit. It made sense. How you doing? Hey, Sips, how are you doing, buddy? I'm good. It's I'm really I'm really grateful for, for this opportunity to actually speak to you because um, this has sort of been in my mind for a while. Um, so I came across your Unilad uh, article, um, Unilad video, um, and that was incredible. Uh, I remember watching the whole thing, just being in so in awe of your of your whole story and your experience. Um, but I wanted to sort of introduce you to to, the, to my audience uh, by way of backstory. Who who is Jamie Hull? Um, yeah, we start off with that, sir. Sure. So, um, yeah, I mean, I've got quite a lengthy sort of story, really, and it's it's almost um, in my mind, you know, where to begin. But if I take you back to sort of the former earlier years of, of my life, um, I, I grew up in the UK here, um, uh, you know, relatively normal youngster for, for, for all intents and purposes. Um, I was in uh, Bedfordshire, so Leighton Buzzard, a small market town. And it was pretty sleepy back in the day. There wasn't an awful lot going on. Um, I went through a little bit of a rough patch as a as a child. I mean, I was just uh, left to my own devices a little bit, sort of, you could say, slightly unsupervised. You know, had a parent split when I was quite young. That's not necessarily, uh, um, you know, uh, extraordinary by by any sort but, of account. Yeah, but it can definitely be damaging to a child. Anyway. Well, it 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 um, it. it it gave me a lot of freedom and it gave me a lot of independence because um, my father was away working a lot. My mother sort of, uh, you know, left the, the, the marital home. They just weren't getting on. So it was kind of inevitable that they were going to separate. So I had a lot of independence. I had a lot of time. I was sort of largely unsupervised, like I mentioned, and up to no good some of the time as a young Herbert, as my late grandmother would, would say. And I was I was getting up to bits and pieces and a bit of mischief, and I started to go down a bit of a slippery slope, and that was um, becoming a little bit more obvious to me, and um, and it was a case of I needed to um, address that I needed to do something about it, or the the reality was that uh, life was going to suck me into a bit of a hole, and I didn't want to be that kind of bad boy potentially, you know ending up with convictions or uh, perhaps even, you know, being sentenced to, because that was probably the reality for me because, you know, I was, um, I had a couple of uh, brushes with the law, so the local police constabulary. What was your, what is the background of your, of where you grew up? <coughs> was it very working class or was it um, middle um, class? Sort of, um, yeah, but I would say it was sort of borderline sort of working class, middle class sort of family background and, you know, but the problem being, like I mentioned, when a, when a, I was the eldest of three, my younger sister sort of uh, headed off with my mother at the time. My younger brother actually chose to stay with me and my father, mm. but my father was away working a lot of the time. And so that's the issue when you're, you're, as I mentioned, sort of largely unsupervised as a younger child. And I was, what, 12 at the time. So, you know, this was fairly accepted i guess the scenario the situation and, and this was um this was still only um about 87 for the record so you know um you know things were life was a little bit different back then and um it wasn't necessarily um 
like, like I mentioned, it wasn't necessarily extraordinary that that would be my situation at the time. Uh, perhaps now it would be frowned upon, you know, that you would have a couple of younger boys at home. But I think back then it was sort of fairly sort of, okay, well, that's the situation with the family. That's the scenario. That's how it goes. But the issue with me was that, okay, I was, I was thinking that I was grown up, okay, because suddenly I didn't have that parental supervision sort of watching over me, kind of clamping down on me every sort of, you know, um, opportunity. So that said, I thought, okay, well, I'm sort of growing up now. I'm sort of uh, almost man of the house when my father was away working, sort of fairly lengthy hours. And so I can pretty much please myself. And I thought on one hand that I was doing marvellous and coping and good strategy and all the rest of it. But then on the other hand, I was out and about. You see what I mean? I was kind of on the streets and I was kind of up to no good. And that situation sort of escalated and I was getting involved in a bit of petty crime. I got picked up, as I mentioned, uh, a couple of brushes with the law, but uh, quite trivial. But I got um, I got a I got arrested one time for it for a theft. I got arrested for a criminal damage, fairly sort of trivial incidents for a youngster. But the issue is if that behavior goes unchecked, then the risk is that the situation will deteriorate and the, the, the child in this case um, can, you know, slide into sort of deeper, in potentially sort of hot water. And, and that was the risk for me. Um, so they, they got to a point where I think I basically gave myself a bit of a proverbial kick up the rear because I remember getting my exam results with GCSE and they were horrendous. I think for, you know, all those years of schooling, mm. I got some, I probably got one GCSE grade C and above, and I thought, this is, this is terrible. This was not what I expected. You know, I expected more of myself and, more, and others expected more of me. So I think then it was a bit of a reality check, and I thought, okay, if I don't metaphorically pull my socks up here, and do something about my younger self, my younger life at that time, remember this was late 80s, then the reality is it's going to be probably a negative slide into worse because I was probably mixing with the wrong peers to a degree as well. And there was a little bit of influence, but perhaps I was a bit of influence as well on them. So with that reality check, I decided to, and the exam, you know, the reality of the sort of poor exams results, I decided to do something about it. I decided to start to toe the party line, so to speak, and play the game of, of life. And I, and I started to work at school to probably the astonishment of my teachers at the time. And I actually started to sort of sit up and listen rather than be in the back of the class, kind of not giving a hoot and giving and receiving Chinese burns to my sort of oppos in the class. Yeah. You know, I started to actually pay attention, thinking, OK, well, if I don't uh, readdress the situation here, you know, life's not going to be good. I want to get better exams. So I actually repeated a year GCSE. And then I actually got enough grades, um, you know, to go on and and do better. So I did a I then did a stint at college slash sort of A-levels at the school that I was at in the sixth form. And I did OK. I mean, <laughs> You know, I joke about it, but sort of uh, not fantastic, but, you know, perhaps that was 
you know down to the the quality of schooling it, it was fairly standard it was not uh, you know I wouldn't suggest it was a, a particularly high achieving school but they did their best probably with the resources and the staffing and and, and what they had available um, but I did my best equally when I decided to follow this up with that kind of younger turnaround in the early years that's what I'm describing and um, and so from there um, I surprised myself I got pretty reasonable kind of A-level results and the joke is you know sort of good enough for government work so to speak and and the irony is that later on and I'll, I'll kind of come back to it but um, but later on you know I did end up the, the irony was I went up I went on to become you know um, uh, a UK uh, police officer and that was the irony because it was only a few years before when I was getting picked up by the constabulary locally <laughs> for crimes of misdemeanors should yeah. we say and um, but anyway I'll sort of come on to that but um, but in the interim I I had a plan and for some reason this was innate it was in me that I really wanted to get out there in the big wide world because it is a big wide world and only you, you only find that if you're prepared to step out of your comfort zone, perhaps, and get out there. There is a lot to see and there's a lot to experience. And something deep down was saying that I needed to get away because partially, remember, I'd already developed this kind of staunch independence from the separation of my parents in as a youngster and, and largely being unsupervised. So that did play into my hands in terms of experience and independence from a very young age. So by the time I was like now 19, 19 and a half posts, my A-levels and everything, I had this confidence to just want to get out there in, in the real world and to want to experience. So um, in the typical fashion of sort of call it Jamie Hull version 1.0, the sort of former self, I, I actually put my money where my mouth was. I'd done a few jobs on the side, you know, and um, worked in some pretty interesting roles to save a few pennies yeah basically got a few quid together and then i went um, to trail finders in here in london and i went i think i went to the branch in kensington high street or something it was a trail finders yeah you know this big travel agent quite notorious and they sold round the world tickets so i was particularly interested yeah to get this big round the world ticket and what, it, is, what is around the world tickets uh, so so basically it was um you know you can get a flight to wherever you could get a flight to you know argentina you could get a flight to timbuktu yeah. if, if you wanted but this was around the world so typically you sit down with the agent and they look at uh, where you potentially want to go and for some reason i wasn't altogether sure i remember being asked that question so where do you want to go sir i said i don't know i just want to get around the world ticket like to go around the world so pretty much they coached me through the process and said well, where do you fancy? And then we ended up talking at length about what might work and what might fit the agenda, this kind of underlying sort of burning agenda to go traveling around the world. And interestingly, I chose um, London. This was the itinerary. I remember it very clearly because we talked at length. And it was London to Johannesburg. I'm not entirely sure why, but I figured it might be exciting. <laughs> Hadn't got a clue, remember? I was pretty green yeah. about the whole process. And a bit naive, if I'm honest. So it was London, Johannesburg, and then overland in South Africa or Southern Africa, where, you know, that that was to be 
sort of portrayed and to play out. What year was this? This was in 1995. 95, okay. In 1995 now. Okay. So I'd done the A-levels. I'd worked for a few years. I'd saved a few quid and got myself together and had the ambition. The the ambition was there. And I was now acting or executing this this ambition for real. So got um, the itinerary down pat with the the agent with Trailfinders. So it was London, Johannesburg, then some overland time in Southern Africa. Then I was going to fly out of Johannesburg to Perth in Western Australia. Then overland from from all of Australasia. Then fly out of Sydney to Christchurch in the South Island of New Zealand. Then um, make a plan to get up to the north. So Auckland now, North Island, New Zealand. Then to uh, Fiji. Then up to Hawaii. Then um, Los Angeles. And then overland across the US to um, Miami, and then finally Paris, London. And that was my round the world trip, like from 19. Truth is, I didn't come home till I was 21. Oh, you was that good? (laughs) (laughs) So I was on the road actually for about 18 months. Yeah. Let's talk about your time in South Africa, because obviously I'm I'm South African, so I I think that will be pretty interesting to me. And especially because 95 was a very important year or big year in our country's history. Yeah. So one year after democracy, for sure. we won the Rugby World Cup. You did. Um, that was our first Rugby World Cup. I think it was our first Rugby World Cup. I think it? I just missed it. If I'd been there like months before, I probably would have got tickets to see oh, really? that World Cup. What was, what was the climate like of South Africa coming in as a foreigner? Um, what did you anticipate South Africa was going to be like and how did you experience well, it? Well, it's an interesting question. So, of course, I'll be honest. So when I was sort of setting sail so to speak from from london i was flying out and i was actually really nervous about the first leg i wasn't really nervous about going to australasia and so on the reason i was nervous was because i'd heard so much regarding perhaps the hostility of south africa you you know you hear stuff in the media you hear stories and i always thought oh perhaps you know is this going to be a good move am i going to be at risk on the ground but then there was a side of me was saying yeah, but you can handle it. You know, you're pretty streetwise, you're pretty savvy because of the upbringing, remember? And and I thought, okay, I've got the independence, I'm savvy, I'm sort of streetwise, I can do this. But I was nervous. And when I went to um, Johannesburg for the first time, and I remember exiting the, the terminal at the main airport in Joburg, and I remember coming out and there was a load of guys there basically trying to collar me for accommodation they could probably see that I was a backpack, you know, big 65 litre backpack on the back and a, another bag. And, you know, I'm sort of there sort of trying to look sort of grown up and sort of tough and, and streetwise. And these guys are trying to collar me to say, hey, we've got accommodation if you need it. You know, you, you're a backpacker, right? Do you need a backpackers? I didn't have a clue. So basically, you've just got to put your trust in the local people to a degree and figure out the situation on the ground. And I had to sort of think on my feet sort of judge it by sort of eye and ear talking to the locals. And I sort of befriended some guy who was trying to, you know, there was a few guys that perhaps didn't look so amenable, so friendly. And this guy was, you know, seemed to be pretty genuine. And so we got chatting and he said, okay, I've got accommodation with a backpackers out in the suburbs. Are you up for it? And I think that was the first port of call. I ended up putting my trust in him of asked him a few questions about it and you know where it was and the location and the proximity from Joburg Central and the airport and before I knew it I was in a sort of a fairly uh, modern and uh, you know um, 
sort of you know, well-serviced minibus, shall we say, driving out into some local suburb. For the life of me, because it's so long ago, remember this was 1995, I'm struggling to remember actual locations. But we went out to a fairly you know, prominent and relatively uh, well-kept suburb. And I stayed a few nights and I was kind of getting used to being in South Africa, talking to the locals, you know, making a few friends in the backpackers. And that was the start of my global journey down in South Africa. And interesting things happened because as I grew in confidence, if you like, and stature as a younger backpacker, I distinctly remember um, against some popular advice, you know, might I add, on, on the street, on the ground there, perhaps in the suburbs, and perhaps the white um, um, South Af Afri Afrikaans were saying, no, no, I wouldn't advise you to go into central Joburg. But if you do, you know, be very careful, you know, because it is more hostile and, and so on. But there was something pulling me. And I thought, I've got to go and check it out. I can't come all the way to Johannesburg and not see, you know, not see the city, not see the lay of the ground. And um, so that pull drew me into the city a couple of days later I remember going in, getting a local bus or whatever it was, and then basically walking around town. And admittedly, I think I did, um, I did uh, garner a, a little bit of attention because basically for all intents and purposes, I, I was a, a white guy on the street on my own in central downtown Johannesburg, basically just walking around with no particular purpose, might I add, because I was just there as a mere tourist. And I think there wasn't a tremendous amount of tourism going on in central downtown Johannesburg. Yeah. And obviously, you know, you must know the city. Yeah. So there I was. And remember, I'm quite naive. I'm quite green here. But I wanted to see it. And I wanted to see it for myself. And I'm strutting around. I'm walking around. And I'm sort of feeling pretty good about myself, almost a bit sort of streetwise, a bit sort of tough. But I was getting a bit of attention. And I can remember going down a couple of streets. And then all of a sudden, I kind of got the sense that Perhaps, you know, there was a bit of eyes on me and perhaps I'm being followed. So I kind of made a few sort of backtracks down some streets and I kind of cut out of there quite rapidly. And then I felt I felt that I was safe. I was back in a sort of, uh, you know, more populated area where there's kind of people walking around. It's a bit more of a business district. But admittedly, a lot of the people walking around were kind of suits, you know, kind of dressed up, you know, obviously coming from the office, grabbing a bit of lunch and then probably going back. Um, apart from that, it was all fairly sort of regular. Um, and then I can remember, again, sort of going off to one side and walking down some pretty major streets. And I remember this, and I never forget. So I'm walking down a pretty major street where there's a lot of through traffic. I'm slightly away from the business district. It seemed like a pretty safe area, albeit no pedestrians. And all of a sudden, there's all these cars kind of screaming down pretty fast. They're kind of trying to exit the city. And they kind of go through these tunnel sections. And I'm walking through there. Don't ask me why. I'm just obviously on a bit of a mission trying to get from A to B. And these cars were coming through. And all of a sudden, I was getting like beep, beep, beep. And I'm looking. I'm looking over my shoulder. I'm thinking, hey, what are these guys kind of tooting at me for? And all of a sudden, I looked at the windshield. And they're kind of putting their hand up. I didn't know these guys from Adam. And then all of a sudden, it dawned on me. It's kind of like they're kind of tooting at me, hand up, waving, almost to say, hey, man, respect, you know, white guy on the street, kind of just cutting through Johannesburg here. And I found that a bit weird, but I kind of sussed out what was going on because I was pretty, you know, savvy. I did pick up on situations on the ground quite quickly. And 
and I guess the you know the, the local guys were sort of saying, hey, respect. And and maybe they were saying that because there was an element of hostility. Perhaps if you weren't in a five or a seven series BMW or whatever, trying to get out of the city when your work was done. I'm not sure, but that was my take on it. That was just my reflection sort of looking back. So I had a an interesting time in, in Johannesburg. And and there was elements, certainly, there was elements of, of real friendliness and locals that did embrace me. Yeah. And I got to know people very well. Yeah. And not just, you know, the whites, but also some of the local, you know, black Africans as well. Um, but I did sense the element of hostility towards me potentially because of who I was and who I perhaps represented as a younger white guy on the street in Joburg in 1995. So there was a bit of this kind of mixed um, um, sort of observation and, and a little bit of sort of friendly slash hostility from that period. And that was going to be my next question was, did you have any bad experiences? Not there, um, interestingly. But I did have a couple of moments in Southern Africa, which I can, you know, happily sort of describe to you. So in terms of, yeah, in terms of negative, I mean, I can describe a lot of amazing things that happened to me as well. And some, I'd, I'd like to probably mention a little bit about what happened to me in a moment um, down in, in, in Cape Town, because that happened slightly afterwards, leaving Joburg. But you asked me about the bad experience. And so the only... I had a couple of bad experiences on my whole global trip, okay? One was in Australia, which was an attempt mugging in Sydney, but I can come on to that. Um, and one was actually a similar event that happened, but believe it or not, that was up in the north. That was in, um, um, so it was in a cafe just outside of Vindhoek in, in Namibia. So obviously we're not talking South Africa, but we are talking Southern Africa here. So I remember um, I'd been on a little safari trip and I'd been part of a, a team with a four by four and we'd been doing a southern circuit of Namibia like the sand dunes and Swakopmund and, 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 and various sort of coastal regions and locations. And then up into the north, we did the northern circuit. And I think I remember we came back to Vintuk and there was a cafe just outside sort of downtown Vintuk. And uh, we'd stopped with this four by four. It was like a Mitsubishi um shogun big thing you know big white shogun which was designed for the desert and for the for the roads in addition and going to this cafe i remember because you know how things happen and then suddenly your mind sort of really focuses so you don't you can remember these um kind of memoirs quite clearly you know for the foreseeable future because of the situation so i remember coming my friends had rather on the on the safari had left the cafe they you know finished up they'd paid they'd been to the toilet they'd perhaps going back over the road to the to the Mitsubishi four by four and meanwhile I was a bit later I'd gone to the toilet perhaps last and as I was coming out of the men's bathroom I can remember this really tall um, so he's a black African dude tall guy quite skinny and he was in like a red jacket short cropped red jacket and he put his hand over the door almost to stop me, but in a friendly manner. And I remember this situation. It was a really friendly sort of approach. So part of me was thinking kind of, first of all, you know, slight alarm because part of me was thinking, OK, this guy's pretty friendly because of his tone of voice. And he's not like really blocking me as such. He's not sort of physically putting hands on. 
but he is blocking my my um, progress to sort of exit the doorway from the men's bathroom back into the main cafe. And he's relatively friendly with his tone of voice, and but his his accent was you know tricky for me because remember I'm I'm English and this guy was from Namibia, so the accent was not so clear for me to follow. But I vaguely um, remember the the sort of dialogue, and he said. Uh, uh, your friends, your friends, uh, they they follow, they go back to the jeep, they go back to the jeep, and I and I said, uh, yeah, mate. I said uh, it's okay. I I know where they've gone, but you know, thanks very much. But while he was doing it, he was clever, so he kind of put one hand across the doorway like this to kind of hinder my my exit, but to be friendly. That was his approach. And then the other hand, in body language, when he was speaking to me, your friends, your friends, he sort of repeated himself, your friends, your friends, they've gone back to the uh, to the jeep, your friends, and he was kind of up and down, right, on my on my front, like this, kind of very flamboyantly, but it was clever. Now, I said, look, okay, mate. When he repeated himself, I'm like, yeah, okay, buddy, yeah, thanks for that, I've got that, and um, I just kind of like put my hand sort of gently against his body, sort of brushed him to one side. I said, yeah, cheers, bud. I, I, I've got that, and thanks very much. And I kind of exited the the cafe, you know, with a bit of purpose to show him that, you know, you know, I, you know, what what I was about. And I exit the cafe, and I take like literally three or four strides across the open street, you know, looking left, looking right. It's all clear. Three or four strides, and look down, and suddenly it twigged in my mind, and I thought, you tosser. But this guy, basically, in the flamboyant actions, what, which I described, I'd looked down, and my what were what was there was a was a nice slimline, you know, leather case um, with the Ray Bans gone. And I thought, my God, I've been done, I've been had. And I just suddenly alarm was up in me, and I just felt so mad, and I was kind of up, I was elevated in myself, you know, mad, angry, because I'd let myself be had by this kind of like um, distraction theft, basically, yeah. And um, it's kind of borderline robbery because in, in a way he's almost using force to, to, kind, of, to kind of achieve that. So in, in, in the law it's kind of borderline, you know, personal robbery. But it, it's a theft, it, it's blatant. And I was angry at myself, so I was kind of elevated as a result of that. And I just went into sort of fight or flight mode and I went looking. I went on the rampage and I, you know, may, most people perhaps would have thought, okay, screw that. I've been done. I'm going to go back to the Jeep with my friends with the end of the safari tour. But I was so angry at myself that I went on the hunt basically. So I went looking for this guy. And of course I look left, it's quiet. I look right, there's a, there's a gaggle of people. And I kind of, I thought, well, where's this guy going to go? He's not going to go quiet and trying to mince into the shadows. He wants to try and blend in and get away. He's got, remember, he's got this red jacket on. And that was probably to his detriment because I went for the people and there was a load of people probably 50 yards away. I kind of scurried towards those people. I kind of banged through a few bodies here and there, looking, 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 looking ahead, looking left, looking right. And all of a sudden there was a side street and I looked right and I saw him literally 50 yards to my right up this kind of alleyway. So I kind of kept going and kind of heading towards him. He didn't know I was coming. I was kind of almost like a predator now, kind of creeping up towards this guy. And I caught up with him. And he's quite tall. He's probably 6'1", six, 6'2". Six, and I'm only about 5'10". I banged my hand onto his shoulder. 
and kind of ripped him round and pulled him round towards me. And I said, hey, mate, I think you've got something that belongs to me. I think you owe me. And I just put my hand out like that. And suddenly, he just basically kind of bricked himself and looked really, really embarrassed and sheepish. And he said, oh, sorry, sir, sorry, sir. And he literally pulled out the the packet of sunglasses, you know, the Ray-Bans in the sort of leather brown wallet and, and head down. He said, I'm very sorry, sir, very sorry, like this, and gave them back to me. Give him his due. He didn't put up a fight. He didn't argue. And I just said, OK, we'll let it be a lesson to you. Don't do that. And I just sort of took the sunglasses off him and kind of, you know, went on my way. You know, I wasn't about to sort of try and retaliate or kind of teach him a lesson or anything like that. I was very happy that I got the sunglasses back and that was it, job done. I mean, partly I blame myself, mm. but um, under the situation, but I was just dead pleased that I got, I got the sunglasses back again. So mm. one negative experience, but I was in South Africa for many, many months and largely, hugely positive time. Yeah, what, what, did, what, did that experience or the time that you spent there um, do anything in terms of like your personality or did you grow, any form of growth happened during that time? I mean, what did you take away most from the time? I guess from that incident, that scenario, you know, it, it, it teaches you and it, it just it makes you wake up a little bit more about to the potential hostilities of the planet. And I'm not just talking about South Africa. You have experiences like that when you're young. And believe me, you super grow up fast. You know, they talk about university of life. You know, people not didn't necessarily go to a I did go to university some years later, but you know, people say, oh, I didn't necessarily go to conventional university, but I had university of life. So I think that would be a great example of how, you know, perhaps a more negative life experience can give you wisdom and can kind of, can make you, you know, have a, gr a greater sense of your own security and your, and your own sort of position on the ground, you know, for, 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 you know, which can benefit you later in life, those kind of experiences. So I look back with, um, tremendous fondness if you like of my experiences largely when I traveled be it sometimes negative to a degree but largely very very positive and life um, assuring and life um, like like affirmations really so I have no regrets whatsoever yeah. and and, and it, what I was going to say about the the positive so for example I, I actually hitchhiked from Joburg twice all the way down to Cape Town and that's a significant distance. It's, from memory, it's like 500 plus miles or something. It's a long way down. And um, this was really positive. I mean, you think that um, it could be a very difficult and precarious position to be in trying to hitchhike from Joburg all the way to Cape Town. Remember, on my own, and I'm this young, very young sort of uh, white guy in, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a sort of a largely mixed um, mixed race kind of country where there is an element of hostilities there was no doubt especially in the mid 90s but i had tremendous um i had tremendous encouragement if you will from some of the locals and i had a number of lifts going all the way down it wasn't just one guy gives me a lift all the way down to joe to to cape town to cover that distance i think i got picked up by about six or seven different people going down there from business guys driving their you know seven series bmw yeah. to the trucker to a local couple you know to yeah. you know other maybe a backpacker that had hired a vehicle and wanted you know pick me up with there was a couple of backpackers there was random it was random yeah. and i actually did that journey twice over because i did a a time down in cape town and i ended up working and i'll come on to that in a second but then 
in the in if you like after the work phase in South Africa, I actually went to Namibia, sort of uh, Botswana, Zimbabwe, Zambia, even Angola. I crossed into the Angolan border, which was pretty ballsy to do that. You remember back in the day, yeah. And then also up to Malawi. So uh, from memory, uh, so from Namibia, across the Caprivi Strip into Zimbabwe and um, the Okavango Delta in Botswana, up into, um, back to Victoria Falls, cross into Zambia, and then all the way up to, to Malawi. Amazing time, amazing time. I did some, some highlights for you. I did a, 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 a rafting trip on the Zambezi, oh, the mighty Zambezi River. Oh my God, it's the best rafting on the planet. I did rafting trips around the world since, and nothing comes close to the power and the might of the Zambezi. And you've got something like 24, 25 rapids in succession. And I remember being bowled over and seriously, um, uh, you know, encouraged and, and impressed with the, the quality of the professionals that worked on the river. I mean, uh, there were some uh, Southern African guys in kayaks i mean these guys were shit hot they were the best in the world to negotiate these rapids and basically their job was when we were in the rafts you know the punters the tourists getting sort of down river and all of a sudden we hit some rapids and a series of rapids and it was like the hand of god which was boom underneath the raft and we'd get blasted out of this you know you couldn't hold on for love nor money and you'd get blasted sort of 10 15 feet in the air into the white water but you've got your life jacket on and you kind of go under in the trough and the bubble and you come back up and some you know um expert you know local guy kayaker would come screaming down basically grab you by the scruff and pull you out of the the zambezi and basically you felt like a drowned rat and he'd kind of kayak you know he'd kind of use the kayak and the paddle get you back to the raft and you had to kind of pull yourself up and over back into the raft reset yourself into the in the lull and the flat spot again down river back to, uh, towards the next raft and pretty much the scenario kind of repeats itself amazing experience best rafting on the planet the zambezi and um i remember sadly a local boy a local african boy um got killed that day um sadly but very you know kind of in an extraordinarily um he got taken by by a croc so this was the reality of, of, of life for the locals along the way within some of the villages mm. as you kind of uh, cascade down that mighty Zambezi. And, and it's, uh, it, it, you know, again, <clears throat> I, I, you talk about hostilities in, in, in Africa, but there are risks associated with just the wildlife, you know, because, you know, if you're living out there in perhaps more bush type areas, there is more of an element of risk from from crocs, from, from obviously the hippo. Yeah. I think that's number one. And um, so I became quite aware and astute towards these risks and that you, could and you prevail. Sp you speak about risks, and the, the one thing that is coming out a lot to me is how, how incredibly brave you are. Um, that's just, it was actually something innate in you, is that you just, you are very adventurous. Because I want to lead this into sort of that you will work with SAS as well. Um, because it's like a, it's a recurring theme in your life. Um, and that is, you've done Kilimanjaro, you've uh, run across America, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. Race across America, yeah. Race across America. Push bike, yeah. Push bike. Was that, was that pu all the way push bike, all the way through? Yeah, so Race Across America, I was, um, I was part of a seven, 
sorry, I beg your pardon, an eight-man team. Okay. So I was one of eight eight guys, and we've we'd done a selection process through the charity Help for Heroes. And um, this was much later in life, uh, post-injury. And so we selected for eight guys. We had a 17-man support crew. We started in West Coast, um, so Oceanside, um, San Diego, um, sort of on the beach. And then we, we, we rode day and night. So it was a perpetual relay for all eight men. Um, and these eight men were eight, uh, so four, beg your pardon, four upright cyclists and four hand cyclists because they'd lost limbs. And uh, we raced day and night in a perpetual constant relay from West Coast to East Coast USA, finished in Annapolis in Maryland, where this kind of US Naval College is, 3,100 miles. And we did it in seven days, seven hours, That's and I think about 59 minutes. That's incredible. And, and where does SAS come into the story? So that was, um, yeah, that was um, before my injury. So again, we're talking, you know, Jamie version 1.0. And um, so following my sort of big backpacker trip around the world and, and sort of the events that unfolded and the life experiences along the way, I, I ended up um, doing some expedition work and I was working in the dive industry quite heavily. I worked in, in, in Australia, I worked in Egypt, I worked in the Philippines, managing a big um, remote uh, project out there in diving. Then I came back and um, as par for career, um, believe it or not, I actually worked in a fairly, I don't know, ordinary job for a, for a period. It was slightly, slightly, um, it, it felt quite unconventional when, when I tell the story, that is, because um, I, I was a, a quality controller for a women's um, uh, lingerie manufacturer in, in, in a company called Gossards. They, they're quite famous. They made the wonder bra for, for girls, like in women all over the world. And this was where I worked as a quality controller, but not quite as glamorous as it sounds. I did that job for about nine, 10 months or so. And uh, meanwhile, I'd, I was interested to challenge myself a bit further. So I ended up uh, making an application for the police. Um, and that was where that kind of part of the story comes in. Uh, and I was a, I ended up becoming a police officer in the Thames Valley for a number of years. Um, and I worked in areas in the west side of London, sort of outside London. So it was the counties of Buckinghamshire, Oxfordshire and, and Berkshire. And it was crazy life. That was a crazy few years in, in the police force, pretty much responding to 999s. That was my life 24-7. Forward sort of rotational shift patterns, sort of days, lates night shifts respectively and it was just non-stop responding to the nines blues and twos so lights and sirens basically screaming around the thames valley going from job to job to job and dealing with everything from thefts to robberies to burglaries to kind of uh you know um, incidents of assault uh, domestic disputes and i was a you know a very busy frontline police officer for for those um, for those years that i served loved the job really loved the job it was a buzz and again there was perhaps an element of risk that drew me to policing because I didn't want to just sit on you know quietly on my laurels in the in a conventional role perhaps in the office that just wasn't for me I always wanted to be out in the world and kind of doing stuff kind of I enjoyed the action and I enjoyed the sort of pull of that that said what I just said regarding being out there in the world that was precisely what was pulling me in a bigger way, like the bigger global picture. 
And I think, sadly, the police couldn't necessarily um, kind of offer me that in, in the greater sense. So the pull for me, in terms of the link to why I end up doing the forces, uh, the armed forces that was specifically, was because I was looking for a bigger picture and I was looking for a bigger challenge. And so, again, I decided to to just take my, you know, put my best foot forward and take those steps, albeit tentatively at first. So I actually took a career break from the police. I applied from a, a career break and they gave me, I think it was up to five years, which was quite extraordinary back in the day. Uh, and I and I used the justification that I was going to go and travel a, for a period. And I was I had the dive ticket. So I was a qualified instructor. So I was going to go out there and work in the world as a dive instructor and do a bit of teaching, do a bit of guiding. And that was hence how I managed to do jobs in Egypt and the Red Sea and uh, Australasia, uh, the Caribbean, and again, the Philippines. But during the career break, latterly, I then chose to go on to, to do a bit of study, to go to university and, and do that period. So I went off to uni, did a, a languages degree. I was enticed, if you will, um, partially with some, um, some Scandinavian influence within the family, but also um, that meant that I could have exposure to Scandinavia. Yeah. So again, that was going to take me off in that direction. You speak four languages, if I'm going to say. Huh? I have, yeah, so I have some um, some knowledge of, I studied Norwegian. Yeah, that was like w what I majored in, as, as the American sort of, uh, Americans would say. I, I majored in Norwegian language. I did a BA honours in Scandinavian. Uh, but I also, you know, studied um, Danish and Swedish in terms of the linguistics. So once, it's pretty much one of those languages, if you learn to speak it, you kind of get three for the price of one because you'll have a, an understanding of the other aspects. The, la the accents are a little bit different um, and the intonation, uh, etc. But um, yeah, it was a great experience. I, I learned the Norwegian language. I lived in Norway. I exposed to what it was to be a resident in Norway for a year. And I had a wonderful time sort of uh, working with a, a Norwegian sort of mountain rescue sort of team over there. And I learned a lot of great skills um, in not just skiing, but ice climbing, you know, rock. Um, again, you asked about, you know, you, you kind of brought up the element of the interest in, in risk. Yeah. It was this, the, the fact that I could, uh, Norway was an amazing adventure playground for a younger version of myself, where again, I wanted to be out in the world. I wanted to be seeing, doing and experiencing. And I was the kind of guy that, you know, and this is not really a boast as such, but I was the kind of guy that didn't just talk the talk. If I wanted to do something, I actually chose to to walk the walk and actually get out there in the world and, and do it and see it. I thought, you know, it's not going to come to me. I've got to go there and I've got to bring myself to that experience to make it happen. So, you know, I had an interest and an ambition. And if I could make it happen, boom, I just went for it. And I tried, you know, tried my best. It, it, maybe it took a bit of money and time to get there, to fulfill the ambitions. But that's what I was all about. Yeah. And um, and so, yeah, Norway happened. I had an amazing time in the outdoors. Became very proficient in 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 skiing and sort of rock and and climbing. And because those guys taught me, and they're very very good at what they do in the outdoors. And um, so I came back with a bunch of skills, basically. You know, I was even diving in the fjords. Which so I was already a diver, and I got to teach some of the locals out there and sort of enhance and push my, push the boundaries of my experience. But not only was I teaching, but I was testing myself and I was pushing and pushing, 
and I was doing some crazy stuff. I was doing like 50, 60 meter dives through the ice in the fjords in the dead of night, um, you know, with a, a sort of a single 15 liter cylinder on my back, no backup and pretty ballsy stuff for a young guy who's now just sort of mid mid twenties. Um, always kind of testing and pushing but calculated risks it wasn't just it wasn't just sort of looney tunes it was very much calculated risks and that was really the essence of my mindset because i wanted to live life i wanted to truly live life yeah and have all the experiences that i could kind of um to, to try to soak up um so jamie i wanted to uh talk about what, what led, led you to leave the armed forces to leave or yeah, to join? To, to leave or to stop. When did you to stop? start? So my journey with the armed forces. So around about the time that I joined my uh, academic course at university to do the, um, the Scandinavian um, uh, degree, I, I also joined the armed forces at that time. I joined a, a group called Cambridge University Officer Training Corps. And, um, and I just absolutely loved it. I, it felt like the glove that really fit. And I... I really loved um, all the experience that I was gaining from the British Army because you had tremendous exposure to all sorts of different regiments and corps and it was largely um, you know self-development and it was tremendous um, you know progress and and lots of courses and great life experience so I ended up going all over the country doing various bits and pieces with the army from artillery competitions down in Salisbury on Salisbury Plain in down in Wiltshire to kind of infantry patrolling competitions in the sort of the deepest sort of dark damp mountains of the Brecon Beacons and the Black Mountains in Wales. So I did a couple of those um, um, Cambrian patrol competitions. And I also did um, uh, parachute regiment selection. So it's something that I put myself forward for voluntarily um, up in North Yorkshire in Catterick. Had all these wonderful, rich, again, life-affirming, uh, experiences where I definitely put myself out there. I put my, myself on the line. I took risks. And, you know, those risks were that I could get hurt. I might not be successful. I may not pass. Um, there was a lot of trepidation. There was a lot of uh, uh, anxiety attached to a lot of the things that I did. Um, not least, you know, the, the P Company, the, the Cambrian uh, patrols in Wales, really treacherous, quite difficult. People even, you know, get hurt and in some in some cases people have actually been killed during such events believe it or not because of the the sort of uh the dangerous nature of of, of british army training really you know at, at its kind of highest levels so it's not without element of risk you know steeper mountains um inclement weather conditions you know raging torrential rivers when you get uh, when you get uh, you know you know the high rains coming in across the mountains so again, you know, it probably goes back to my, my yearning for that life, that adventure, that, that challenge, that calculated risk to an extent, but again, you know, wanting to live life. So again, I really found myself in the forces and probably in hindsight, I perhaps should have joined the forces as, as a younger boy soldier and it would have, it would have been, you know, my, my life's calling. But um, I did things in a very um, sort of unorthodox, shall we say, and roundabout fashion but eventually I kind of crammed in a lot of, lot of these experiences I des- as I described. And then from the Cambridge University OTC, um, following, you know, the Cambrians, the, the P Company, a whole bunch of courses, you know, 
skiing instructors courses, PTIs courses, driving courses. I went on to do Royal Military Academy Sandhurst. That was probably the pinnacle of my of my um, of my uh, my time with the OTC, and the kind of culmination of it all after about three three years. And then finally, um, I'd pretty much exhausted all of the the opportunities and possibilities, and it was recommended to me by my enthusiastic CO or commanding officer at the time, and some of the senior staff that I put I perhaps look at volunteering to go forth for um, UK SF selection, which was UK Special Forces. And I hadn't necessarily thought about that myself, truth be told. I'd read a few books and I'd sort of learned about, you know, the trials and tribulations and in some cases the horror stories attached and the risk of failing that, the high risk of failing because it's, um, you know, it's a very um, a limited um, scope for, for who gets through selection every year and there's only two selections per year summer and winter but it was one of those that again if I chose to do it that was and I got the recommendation from my CO at the time he, he gave me a good write-up and, and put me forward and did the papers then only I would know if I chose to put my best foot forward and again that's what I was all about nothing ventured nothing gained in this life and from my humble experience that's what I've learned so I put my best foot forward once again and I, I chose to have the courage of my convictions and go for the selection process. As a reservist, it took 13 months. So that was no that was no sort of small fry request on one's life in terms of commitment, in terms of the hunger that it takes an individual to want to get through that kind of process, you know, uh, SF selection. <coughs> and, and I found myself doing, you know, the six months phase of, of sort of mountains or the hills phase followed by sort of seven months of sort of weapons and tactics and sort of SAS kind of strategy, so to speak. So there I was going through all those processes all those hurdles and all those tough times because it was, you know, without kind of going into all the nitty gritty, it was a tremendously tough time, you know. The, the increased weights that you had to carry in the mountains, you know, by the end of it, you're kind of pushing probably all up. You're, you're carrying about 80 plus pounds on your back covering significant distances, you know, 40 mile sort of forced marches day and night in inclement weathers. And you're navigating solo on your own with a map and compass uh, with no with no GPS. And um, what's the dropout rate like for this? Um, it's difficult to say what the dropout rate is, but largely speaking, percentage wise, about 5% of people get through. <laughs> so so if I told you that Roughly speaking, about 150 people started the process. Um, roughly speaking, about 5% of people were successful sort of 13 months later in terms of getting badged into into the uh, the regiment. So I was pretty fortunate that I did get through first time. I had that somehow that innate ability to hold on because something in me really wanted it because it was a challenge that I was facing that I'd Remember, I'd volunteered for this. I'd put myself forward, put my best foot forward. And for some reason, I was like a dog with a bone. I had to hold on at all costs, and I wasn't prepared to give up. Yeah. Was it um, Was it purely selfish reasons uh, to join the forces, or was it? did you have some form of calling towards helping people, and did you believe in some greater purpose? A bit of both. I, I would say that there is a bit of a calling, if you're, certainly if you're going to do that kind of work and if you're going to volunteer to go down that line. Uh, because of the element of of what it takes to get there 
But I do think that it was somewhat selfish. I do think that looking back, I was probably somewhat selfish in, as an individual in the earlier version of my, my, my younger self because it takes a level of selfishness to come through all of that, to put everything else on the back burner, if you will, because you have to be so thoroughly committed to the process. And so things take a bit of a backseat. So to a degree, you know, you, you know your other life, work, relationships, uh, because you're so heavily focused on what, what it is you're trying to achieve. And of course, the, um, the expectation on you and the demands that the, the army places upon you if you're going to try to get there in order to meet the requirements and to get badged into such a regiment. So it's not really for the faint-hearted. It's not impossible. You don't necessarily have to be a superman, but you have to be pretty much um, a relative all-round sort of athlete. But above all, psychologically and sort of spiritually, you have to want it. Yeah. And you have to be super hungry for the process and you have to stick with that hunger. You cannot afford to let that hunger dissipate. Yeah. And that's my sort of humble take on all of that and my from my experience. Yeah. Did did that sort of help you through your injury? Massively. What so, you what you learned um in the So when I when I got injured and I mean the, 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 the injury is widely documented, you know, I was piloting a light aircraft in the summer of two thousand and seven and for the record this was my own space and time and it was not a military duty. So I was in service, but this was my own uh, ambition once again. And I w always wanted to learn to fly. And that harked back to um, my late grandfather that trained as a pilot towards the end of um, Second World War. And he greatly influenced me as a young boy. So that's perhaps where it stemmed from. So always wanted to learn. Again, put my money where my mouth was and not just talk the talk, but walk the walk. Went to Florida and I embarked on a, on a, on a comprehensive flying training course. Fast forward one month and I'm now pilot in command so solo pilot um, flying the left hand skipper seat of the aircraft sort of a control stick in between my knees for the uh, for the uh, navigation of, uh, so the control of the aircraft and the throttle in the right hand column to control um, you know um, engine speed and as I, as I said I fast forward I'm one month into that course and I'm now up in the pattern working at a thousand feet I'd just come back from a small municipal aerodrome and rejoined a pattern. And I'm overhead and I'm 1,000 feet indicated from the altimeter. And the fire breaches up within the footwell of the, the um, uh, sorry, I, I beg your pardon, the fire in initially breached because it flared up externally and it initially breached the cockpit when I made my final turn into wind. And as I'm descending, 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 the fire not only had breached the cockpit, it starts to build up within the confines of the small two-seater cockpit. So as I'm descending and I'm watching altimeter spin down through 900 feet, 800 feet, 700 feet, the fire is building and it's kind of waxing up, upwards against the body. So my lower limbs were taking the brunt of the flame earlier on and it's starting to build up. I'm watching altimeter spin down 600 feet, 500 feet approximately 500 feet the fire is about halfway up within the chamber of the cockpit and i'm starting to get very sort of uh you know concerned about the situation and suddenly my mindset f goes from a sort of a racing objective sort of initial panic i won't i won't lie to you about that so the first sort of phase of descent from a thousand feet down 
during that breach initially and the fire building up, the, the, the mindset went from sort of panic. When I once I got to about 500 feet, I became quite rational about the, the process and quite calm almost because I realized what I had to do. I realized quite distinctly that I needed to exit the aircraft earlier than normally, than conventionally, if I had a chance of surviving the, the burning cockpit because the fire was building up so rapidly and it was almost like a hasty estimate in my mind of what was going on. That's what we call it in the military, a sort of a hasty estimate of what is going on. You know, you're, it's, coming on, it's coming on top of you. It's, the situation's kind of coming on top quite rapidly. You know, whatever that situation might be, you have to think on your feet, formulate a plan, and then act on that plan. So through this hasty estimate of being on fire within the confines of the cockpit, descending, 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 500 feet, I'm thinking, okay, I need to exit more rapidly than, than the norm. So that said, I then simply f flicked back to uh, the training that I'd received and one of the US instructors, um, I al always remember this, he said, above all, if you've got a problem and there's an emergency, fly the damn aircraft. And this kind of echoed and reverberated and I fell back on that. And so I figured, okay, just follow the protocol, follow the training, what you'd been taught. So I turned the key to the, the um, ignition off, the red switches for magnetos, alpha and bravo off, off, the master switch off, the lights off, the strobes off, the fuel pump off, the fuel selector valve rotate off. I then removed my headset, tried to stay as calm as possible, removed the headset, threw it in the opposite footwell, went for the... Um, the harness, unbuckled my, my three-point harness very carefully, sort of wriggled out of that, opened my left-hand canopy door, quite low level now, probably 150 feet or so, gliding in under no steam, so to speak, because I've switched the engine and instrumentation and control off, and I'd knocked the throttle off. I'm fully gliding in. I'm looking left, looking right, looking forwards, looking for hazards, looking for obstacles in my path, but I'm trying to be mindful of the trajectory of the aircraft just gliding in just tweaking the stick momentarily knocked off that that throttle like i mentioned as i'm gliding in um i had to open that canopy door last moment it wouldn't open i had to then elbow it and punch it with the the, the strike it with the heel of my hand and then it popped up to the vertical position i was then very low level so 50 feet 40 feet 30 feet 20 feet and then like sort of jackrabbit almost, I clambered onto the seat, onto the left wing, looked out at the horizon, and then I went for it. I basically clapped my hands above my head, feet and knees together, and took a giant leap from the trailing edge, the exit of the um, the uh, the left wing of the aircraft. How high were you at that time? So I was probably only, so I was getting out about 20 feet, there's no doubt about that, and estimated about one five fifteen feet when I exited, because obviously she's dropping um, in in the descent the whole time. So the the jump was uh, approximately one five fifteen feet, and I would have been running in, sort of gliding in, um, approximately thirty knots. So probably thirty two, thirty three miles an hour. What happens when you land? So I sort of, sort of, as I said, I jumped out, snapped the feet and knees together, sort of jumped and through that airspace landed like a sack of spuds just hit the ground hard and then i thrust forward from landing on my feet 
thrust forward. I remember face planting the ground. It's a tremendous impact with the long grass but soft ground because of recent torrential rainfall. And that is exactly why I um, precisely you know, veered away from the, the concrete of the runway heading towards a grassy stretch because I knew the grass would afford me a softer landing for what I was obviously about to do in the cockpit. So that was the sort of the process, the mindset. And so I landed like a sack of spuds, thrust forward, smashed my face. I had a bilateral nasal fracture, superorbital eye socket fractures above both eyes, multiple soft tissue lacerations from the razor grass, popped a collarbone, hyperextended my finger and fractured on the left index finger. And um, I inadvertently, in the action of the jump with the speed and the impact, the kinetic energy, ruptured my large intestine, in the colon, lacerated one flank of my liver. But the worst of it was, above all of that, the life changer, I was 63% third and fourth degree burns. And the fourth degree burns meant there was exposed bone to my shins in the, uh, the lower portion of the, the lower limbs because that was the part of the body that took the longest period of flame within the cockpit from the initial breach. So that's where it was building up. So my poor shins got really badly burned. I was airlifted from the scene within about 15 minutes, uh, placed in a drug-induced coma. 24-7, doctors, nurses, specialists, interventional radiologists, physiotherapists, nutritionists, you name it. All these guys and girls, wonderful medical team in, in Florida looked after me around the clock, six months, drug-induced coma, some 2.7 million US dollars on insurance policy, and the rest is history. The surgeons had to excavate tibialis anterior and deep perineal uh, around the lower limb on both legs, so bilaterally, because the burns to my shins, remember fourth degree exposed bone, was so deep that they had to cut out the soft tissue, the muscle, the sinew, the nerve. So I ended up being rendered with physical disability as a result. What what's what is that period like for you mentally? Like that so from after when you wake up, what is your first sort of thoughts? Initial thoughts for me were devastating because the reality of the the concept of at what had happened on the ground when I jumped was was obviously real. It was raw, it was there. But obviously later you know, I mean, I was a very, you know, in a desperate state, in a, in a desperate bid for survival on that day. But then they quickly, you know, airlifted me, placed me in drug-induced coma um, against my, um, you know, my my actual sort of desires or sentiment at the time. I didn't want it. I wanted to, to go. I wanted them to kind of pretty much euthanize me there because of the dreadful condition that I was in. And, um, who, and made I, the, who made the call to continue? I think it was a nurse that um, basically protested and objected. And um, and anyway, the rest is history and that all happened. But then you ask about waking up. So that was in reality six months later for me. And by now I'd been repatriated back to UK Central Burns Unit in Chelmsford in Essex and at the Broomfield Hospital, so the big burns unit there. And um, I remember a nurse distinctly with a sort of an Essex accent. Um, and she said, bless her, she said, you know, all right, Jamie, we've got to get you moving now. Got to get you moving now, my love. Got to get you sat up in bed. And I'm thinking, Jesus, God. There was like this such a thick fog going on. I couldn't quite, you know, 
fathom and comprehend what was going on. And I found it dreadfully tough. And I'm trying to sort of focus through this fog, this dense fog in my mind, trying to make sense of it all. I didn't even know where I was. And I, I remember pretty much snapping at her and she sort of says, look, go away, you know, piss off like that. And, and, and she kept on and on. And, and I, all right, Jamie, got to get you moving now, my love, got to get you sat up. And it was kind of repetitive and it was kind of getting through to me somehow. And it was cold. All of a sudden the window opened and this kind of rude sort of awakening, this draft was kind of wakening me gradually. And, and I was cold, you know. So she repeated herself and I just snapped back and I said, look, piss off, leave me alone. Go and get my American nurse. Because <laughs> for some reason I had sort of a, perhaps some sort of a softer affinity with an American nurse. But that's another story. And... And um, was she good looking? <laughs> probably, mate. But I don't really visually recall that, you know. But uh, for the record, it is all in. It is all in the story, you know. Yeah. It's all there. It's all been published. But um, um, so this this Essex nurse was kind of bending my ear, or or what little ear, because my ears are pretty ragged now. Again, the surgeons had to sort of snip away some of that that damage. But this Essex nurse bending my ear and sort of really winding me up at the time. But eventually I kind of made sense because of the, perhaps the cold air and I woke up. And I'm like, oh, my God, is this for real? And it all dawned and suddenly it was like, it's like the reality of, oh, my God, Jesus H. Christ. This is where I am. I'm in this hospital ward in the UK. I'm back. You know, I'm, I'm, I've survived. They brought me back. They brought me back to the UK. I was in America. Oh, my God. And of course, the reality of my condition and the painkillers and everything. Else. And then the next thing, she's bringing me a, a mirror, and she's saying, "Look, my love, you know, we've got to, you've got to have a look at yourself. You know, there has been a quite a distinctive change in your appearance, and we've got to get you to have a have a good look at yourself and and sort of almost make sense of that." And that was tough. I remember for the first time looking in the mirror and thinking, "Jesus, you know, you're never going to be the same again." And of course, all the immediate worries, concerns, anxieties, you know, perhaps I'm never going to I'm never going to be able to, you know, walk down the street looking like this. I, I, you know, I, and my face was so heavily swollen, blotchy, red, angry looking scars back then. And it was horrendous. I felt like sort of, you know, you know, a descendant of the elephant man. And I was so cut up about that. You know, I'd gone from being a reasonably good looking bloke, you know, before the incident. And that 45 seconds of, of kind of, you know, kind of repeated flames within the cockpit and kind of getting blasted on the wing just before I managed to jump, you know, during, during flight, it, it sort of, those flames sort of carved me up and the damage was done. And I was thinking the worst, am I ever going to be able to, you know, walk, walk out in public? How am I going to, you know, deal with friends, with family? Am I ever going to have a relationship? Probably not. Who's going to want to date a guy like this? You know, so all of the worst feelings for a young guy. And actually, for the record, at that time, I was a young buck still, relatively. I'd only just turned 32 years of age. I'd gone from being, you know, relatively, you know, you know, all singing, all dancing young guy to, you know, a major burns victim laid up in the hospital, mummified because of all the bandages and dressings and, you know, all of the, the medical garb that I was kind of wearing on a, on a day-to-day basis. I was unrecognizable virtually f- compared to the man that I was. 
And that was psychologically extremely tough to deal with. So in essence, the truth is my recovery, two years in the hospital, the first six months drug-induced in the US, and followed by 18 months in various UK burns units across the country. Um, 63 surgeries under general anaesthetic in, in the course of in the course of the preceding years of my recovery. Um, a mammoth fight back from uh, pneumonia, septicemia, renal or kidney failure, um, you know, all manner of, 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 uh, of compli complex um, infections requiring um, complex um, antibiotic interventions to treat. So many skin grafts, so many surgeries, human donor skin, my own skin, pig skin, artificial skin. I was, um, I was, a, a, if you like, a, a model for the surgeons. Uh, you know, in terms of, um, in in terms of, uh, you know, I felt like a sort of a dummy almost. That's what I'm trying to say. That they were having to work with me in terms of trial and error. Um, I was a guinea pig. That's what I was mm. for, for 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 those t two years in the hospital and and then some. Do you know the statistics of how many people have endured what you've endured in terms of like burns? I mean, don't get me wrong. Many people have, have, have suffered burns in this world. That yeah. goes without saying. I mean, there's all kinds of accidents going on all the time. Yeah. But not many people, very, very few people, I would, I would uh, uh, you know, confidently suggest and, and in fact, you know, hands down say have not survived large percentage third degree burns. When I say large percentage, the definition of such in the medical world is 40% plus total body surface area. And when you sustain third degree burns of 40% plus of your total body, the, the complications then start to super manifest themselves. So all kinds of bodily systems become affected from, from um, you know, not just your cardiovascular, but your lymphatic system, your, your renal system your endocrine system, all of these different bodily systems uh, become super, you know, um, aggravated and affected by the, you know, the, the aggravation of the burn. It is so all-consuming and it's probably, you know, it's probably one of the worst things that can happen to a human being yeah. on, on the planet. Yeah. Uh, and, and so it takes many, many years. People don't understand, but the skin is a major organ. And when it's so devastated and it's such an open sort of book yeah. if you will from the from the extreme damage it's a it's a massive process of trial and error for the burn surgeons to to try to get you cover albeit temporary cover you know over periods the temporary cover can break down and infections can creep in and then they've got to do repeat surgeries over and over again so that's why the journey in the hospital is so long traumatic and and arduous yeah. And and it's a massive fight. It's a major, major fight to come back from. And and few people will put up the, you know, will, will, will hang in there. I mean, the analogy I use when I'm speaking about this generally is I was like a boxer in the ring, yeah? But I wasn't on round 12 having been sort of beaten and battered and just about hanging on in, you know, like the sort of Rocky Balboa sort of analogy. I felt like I was on round 4,137. Yeah. And yet I was still in the ring and I was still forced and I was still being compelled to fight. And you know what? I, it was it was tough. I, I Many times I felt like I had to throw the towel and I couldn't do it anymore. And how the hell I was able to hang on in there, mm. I've got no idea. I just kept going. It was a bit like, remember that old soldier? 
that would just keep going at all costs, like that dog with a bone, just always a little further, kind of had to get there. Did you, you know? Did you so have any support groups or anything like that to sort of get you through it? I did speak to a few people in the hospital, sort of, you know, there were psych- um, doctors of psychology, you know, psychologists that would talk to me. and But, you know, I didn't necessarily think that it was a tremendous help. It was almost like, you know, once a week, it was, you know, it was almost like a bit of a, you know, just break up the week. And it was a bit of a jolly almost, you know, talk to these people. I didn't necessarily think that they were truly helping me psychologically. The truth be told, I pretty much psych sort of rehabbed myself. But it took years. What I was going to say was three years of physical healing from all the surgeries and the repeat and the aftermath. But interesting, about five years psychologically in terms of acceptance, in terms of coming to terms with the new me. So that was version 2.0, Jamie Hull, the new me. And that was a huge acceptance. It took me a long time to properly get over it and, and accept that. Remember that new guy that was having to step out in public and walk down the street. And, and go with this face and talk to people and kind of try to, you know, have that new relationship forming with, again, friends, family members, and, and, and not just that, but, you know, let alone the world of, you know, possible kind of employers and, mm. and, 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 and girls, you know. I mean, I wanted to, to date again, but I was, the truth, I was scared shitless because of how I might be perceived and, you know, that, you know, you, you f- I just, pr- I properly felt like the ugly duckling l- when I stepped out in public, let alone to how I was going to feel if I was trying to chat up some girl in a, in a bar or a, or a cafe or a, or in a public event or whatever. It was, it was terrifying for me in the early years, you know. Is there any moment that sticks out that sort of re- restores your faith in humanity? Yeah, there's a nice moment where, I guess a nice story where, I guess in the early years, um, there was a couple of moments actually when one of the first events was that I tentatively came out of the house. This was in the really early years when I was at my mum's in the little cul-de-sac in, in, in the town in Bedfordshire and I stepped out and I'm thinking I've got to get outside and I've got to try and push this walking a little bit more. And when I stepped out, I'm worried about the net curtains twitching, thinking they can see me, they can see what I look like. And this is the version 2.0 and I, I can't handle this, you know. But then gradually I kind of pushed the envelope and I started to go a little bit further each day. I don't know, it was a few weeks later before I kind of ventured out of the cul-de-sac, went up the street, and it was this little road that kind of crept out onto a, another main area. And there was a little news agents there. And the news agents was uh, hosted by um, an Asian gentleman. And I remember going to the news agents for the, the first time and I wanted to buy a daily paper. I figured this was going to be you know, an achievement to, for the first time. I'm going to the shop. I hadn't been to the shop now, remember, in, in sort of two plus years. And I had a few, you know, a couple of quid on me in spare change. And I'm going to go and buy the Daily Mail or whatever and, and take it back and, and, and read it. That was going to that was my goal. That was my mission. A lot of goal setting that I did. And this was one of the early ones. So I went there and I'm thinking the worst. I'm thinking that this guy, the news agent, I knew he was an Asian gentleman because I knew it was an agent shop. It was like, on the top it said like m dot shah so it was it was obvious you know yeah. and then i walked in and i'm thinking this guy's going to really like be looking me up and down he's going to be really kind of like scrutinizing me maybe he's not going to trust me because of what i look like and the scars because the scars really really um <clears throat> excuse me they ran they ran deep mm. in in the early years so i'm talking and i and i basically sort of grabbed my paper and I say, uh, just the paper, please, you know. 
And I'm, I'm really quite sort of almost head down, baseball cap on, thinking yeah, he's going to clock me. And then he just sort of says, um, and how are you today? Like this. And I sort of looked up a little bit and my face was kind of stern because I'm kind of expecting whatever I'm expecting, hostility or even the, the kind of hostile look towards me because of how I look. And he just said, oh, and how are you today? And I just said, oh, well, I'm, I'm fine, thank you. You know, and I kind of slid the couple of quid across the, uh, you know, to buy to buy the paper. And like, I think it was like a Twix or something. And I sort of swallowed hard, I remember. Turned around and sort of tentatively, you know, grabbed my paper in my Twix bar, walked back out of the shop. And I think, actually, that wasn't so bad after all. That guy was actually pretty friendly. And, um, you know, that was me. And, of course, I'm walking back down. to, And that elevated me a little bit. I remember on the walk back towards my mum's house, where I was kind of re rehabilitating at the time, because I had my little bed in the lounge. And, and you know, that, it was just a little two up, two down. And, and, and you know, that was, again, that, I, I guess you asked the question, that what was, you know, what was restoring my faith? But there was another incident, similarly, where I went to the local doctor's surgery, and I like to draw this out because... I'm sitting there in the doctor's surgery. Imagine this was kind of even more um, ambitious, shall we say, for a guy in my shoes at the time with all the heavy sort of, you know, kind of battle scars from the burns. And and um, I'm sat there and I'm quiet. You know how it is in the doctor's surgery? Everybody's quiet and there's no noise. Yeah. And everybody's just sort of sat there. And nobody wants to even look at each other. But I'm thinking, this is because it's me. I'm like the sort of... Uh, you know the the almost uh you know the sort of you know the alternative guy sat there nobody wants to look and nobody wants to say anything i'm fearing the worst and i'm just sort of holding my own and all of a sudden this little girl opposite in between her mum's legs she stood there she's only about three or four and she she actually sort of looks at her mum looks at me looks at her mum again and says mummy What's happened to that man's face? And I was, I was sort of taken aback. And I think the mother was absolutely mortified. Oh, Can you imagine it? Imagine and everybody's sort of like, all focusing on, on me. And I'm sort of sat there. And I think there's a few people looking a bit sort of, oh, my God. You know, a bit sort of embarrassed, a bit sort of <laughs> blushing almost for me. Yeah. And the little girl is just there expectant of an answer from my, her mother. And the mother said, oh, uh, uh. Uh, don't 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 be don't, you, no, don't be rude or something like that. And I just sort of said, look, this is where I've got to step up. So I said, it's okay. I said, it's okay. I said, I'm happy to um, explain to your to your daughter. You know, I said, and I just sort of leant forward gently and I said, I said, um, so what what happened to me was um, I was involved in a fire. I said um, <coughs> I was in a plane and I was involved in a fire and I kind of explained the situation to her. But I said, look, I'm okay now. I said, I'm a lot better now. I've just come to the doctors to get some medicine. I said, but thank you for being curious, you know, or words to that effect. And um, and it was kind of a cool thing because you realise that rather than really feel kind of cut up about that and embarrassed, I tried to turn it around in my mind to think, to say to myself that, look, this is a young person, a very young person that is naturally very um, sincere with the, that curiosity and they're they're very innocent about it, and that was kind of cool in the way because these are questions that maybe the adults would like to ask, yeah, but they're perhaps shy, they're a bit backward in coming forward, 
and of course I've had that a lot over the years. Yeah. But the kids are quite cool and they're quite open and, and I like that, you know. Kids are naturally curious. Of course. What's what's life like now? So Yeah, life is like um, back you know, compared to the early years, it's um it's like a tremendous um um complete you know, uh, rehabilitation slash revamp and and progression on that version two point zero, you know, the new me. So in this new body, in this new skin, and I, I'm I'm basically I'm cutting around town now. I'm a man about town once again, and I'm enjoying life. I'm I'm loving it. I'm sort of wagging my tail once again and, and kind of getting on with it. Don't get me wrong. You never fully dig what's happened to you when you've been through like a massive life changing ordeal. And I mean, you know, again, you know, for the record, and if I may ha have just a slight boast here, you know, and Come this, on. you know, this is definitely a life changing accident for somebody to go through. So for me to have gone through that massive life-changing accident and come out the other side of it, and then many years later to still kind of, you know, sort of, you know, surreptitiously be sort of shining a light for myself and hopefully, you know, in terms of benefiting others with, you know, sharing the story and speaking about it and hopefully helping others to some small degree. You know, I, I get a deep sense of joy from that and, um, and, 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 that said you know I'm, I'm happy about life again i'm happy to to where i'm at and, and and i'm basically happy to step out in public again and um and that's really what it's all about because remember this is no dress rehearsal you've got to it goes back to what i was describing earlier on no matter what you want to achieve whether you want to become the next um tiddlywinks kind of champion or whether you want to become that kind of you know olympic or paralympic athlete or you want to achieve something in business you know, it's all about putting your best foot forward and not just talking the talk, but walking the walk and having the hunger to follow through on your ambitions to achieve what it is that you're you're hoping to achieve. Yeah. yeah. And and what do, what do you do day to day? You're a motivational speaker? Yeah, I do quite a bit of uh, motivational speaking. I speak from all sorts of groups and audiences, from schools to um, youth groups to, uh, you know, women's institute to... Um, you know, charitable events and cause. I'm an ambassador for Help Heroes Charity, and I and I sort of closely um, um, am involved with that kind of relationship and association. And uh, I also am in my personal world as well. I do quite a bit of uh, expedition work, and I'm a keen diver still. You know, I, I love my diving. I, I still teach. I'm now a paddy course director in the dive world, and I love to teach and to give something back in that respect. I work with them. Um, uh, different clients and in, and also indeed um, wounded soldiers and ex-servicemen on occasion. So there's uh, a great passion of mine, and that takes me far and wide. Um, you know, I love to get to sort of sunnier spots. I'm not so much into the inclement, uh, colder waters of the UK, yeah. but yeah, give me an opportunity to go dive the tropics wherever, and I, and I'm gone. Yeah, um, do you get recognised on a day-to-day -day basis? Sometimes <coughs> I do. Yeah, I mean, I I joke about it. I'm like a sort of a you know, I'm who am I? I'm I'm nobody special. I'm I'm, I'm certainly no A-lister for that. But I joke about it, and I, I'm like a B-list celebrity. So some people will clock me, you know, because once you get published, and or once you've done a little bit with the media, be it sort of yeah. television, well, radio, I mean, internet. I, I think last time I checked, the UniLab post has like got like three and a half million views or something. Oh no, it was up on that. Even it's it's about six point five. Six point five. It's a big number. It's a big number. Yeah, it still generates, and um, of course, those kind of things once they get a certain. Um, um, momentum it, it doesn't really sort of stop there but um, yeah it's interesting but obviously that a company like um, 
um, Lad Bible, um, they've got a tremendous kind of internet engine and it just keeps driving. Um, but, um, you know, it's not just about, you know, the big media for me. You know, it, it, I get a great deal of satisfaction sometimes and have done, you know, going in to talk to younger audiences. And I've gone in and spoken to a lot of youth groups and schools. And so my messages are quite... Um, emphatic and and simple really for the younger groups in in terms of look you get the most out of life by what you put in and also i can evidence in a way i can evidence my my younger years and i can talk about remember the backstory from when i was a kid and say look there was a period where i was a bit of a bad lad and that if if i went down that road and if i carried on going down that slope then i was going to end up in probably some borstal or some penitentiary mm. and incarcerated and god knows what so my message is pretty clear about, you know, you, you should toe the party line and, and realise that, you know, you get out what you put in. But the truth is, life, you know, will serve you better if you if you choose to take the right path. And that's what my sort of former sort of journey was all about. And but moreover, in terms of adult life and progression, it's about, again, putting your best foot forward and not being afraid to act on your ambitions and, and to, to go forward in that sense. Yeah, and, and on that, Jamie, I want to say thank you so much for, for this chat. Um, it's honestly, it's been, it's eye-opening, inspiring. Um, I've really, I've really enjoyed this. And honestly, I commend you so much on what, your attitude um, and just, yeah, you need to continue inspiring people. Um, I think your story is so impactful. Um, and honestly, I wish you all the best. Uh, thank you for coming on. Um, and I'm sure we'll be, we'll be in contact for, for many more years to come, I'm sure. Um, yeah. And Great, Sibs. Yeah. Thanks very much. And hopefully I'll get back down to uh, South Africa one day. I'd, I'd uh, love to get back down there and um, maybe get back to uh, the likes of Table Mountain and the, the Lion's Head. And I used to do like tabbing, you know, walking, hiking up and down there when I was a, uh, really? a youngster back in the day. I'd love to get back there one day. It's, yeah, and I'll, I'll gladly show you around. Um, love, love Lion's Head. I literally do that all the time. Um, but I'll add all Jamie's descriptions in the link below. Um, you've got a book out as well. Uh, yeah. The book is titled... Yeah, the book is called Life on a Thread. And basically, Life on a Thread, What Doesn't Kill You. And it's published by Penguin. And um, the hardbacks have been out since May 21 this year. Uh, the paperback is due out in May 2022. And so that's been getting some wonderful reviews on Amazon. I've, you know, don't just take my word for it, but I've had a couple of hundred reviews now uh, from Amazon.co.uk and also Amazon in the States. And people are, people are really enjoying it. So uh, they're getting a lot from that. Fantastic. And I'm, I'm looking forward to reading that myself.